is the Lord Yahweh of hosts. And we submit our hearts to you, Lord, because your word is truth. We need to pay attention to the words of God. Because you, as the disciples said to Jesus, Colossians, there's a headline from another preacher, another church, put that together. Colossians, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. We're going to talk today, we've talked about the supremacy of Christ, and I have to say that uh, my first sermon two weeks ago should have been two sermons. Uh, the section on uh, the supremacy of Christ, chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, needed the warning to itself, really. I didn't feel I did it justice. Let's see if I can, with the Lord's help, apportion this book up section by section in the remaining Sundays this side of, of Christmas. We'll turn to the Ephesian letter as we go through Colossians because Paul wrote them both at the same time. And this letter was to the church at Colossae and addresses some issues that were, that were particular to them. They were being troubled by false teaching and false religion. The other churches in the area doesn't, didn't seem to be in a problem. But they were also going to receive the letter which we call the one to the Ephesians, which was written to all the churches in that area. So Paul is saying some things to the Colossians briefly that they're going to hear a longer version of in the, in, the, in, the, in the circular letter called Ephesians, okay? So we need to bring some more detail in from Ephesians from time to time. So from the supremacy of Jesus, the, the letter now turns to the... From the supremacy of Jesus, it turns to the, the, the Savior who is sufficient for us. Jesus is Savior and sufficient. And just as in uh, Ephesians... Two, Paul now addresses his hearers and readers and reminds, because people heard the scriptures read to them in those days, okay, uh, with, that we've been saved. Who has saved us? How has he saved us? What have we been saved from? What have we been saved to? So let's pick it up from verse 21 of Colossians 1. Go back. And you, all of you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind because of wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh. So who's the he he's speaking about? Jesus. Jesus has reconciled us to God in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister or word named servant. We were alienated by and made enemies in our mind by wicked works. Both what we thought and what we did was rebellion and disobedience against God. We were darkened in our minds, deaf towards God, blind to his majesty and goodness. Here's the longer version of this in Ephesians. You, he made alive, who were dead. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts or appetites of our flesh, our body, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Get that. 
We're by, we're by nature children of wrath. It's not that what we did deserve wrath. We would risk what we are deserved God's wrath, just as the others. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's the phrase that comes up so often in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. In Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. The faith was not of you. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the scriptures, we're described in our unbelief, when we were unbelieving, outside of Christ, without faith in God, in a number of ways. Here they are. We were, that's a bit small, sinners, rebels, reprobates, objects of God's wrath, subjects of Satan darkened and dull in our minds. The Bible calls us fools. There you go. Chew on that. Brutes. We were less than truly human. We're not the humans God made us to be. We've become more like animals, brutes. Blind, deaf, and dead. That's the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. This describes what it is to not be a Christian. Your condition. As R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord, said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's in our nature to do it. Our destiny outside of Jesus was death, resurrection to judgment, condemnation and damnation and eternal punishment. Now, I know that we talk sometimes about making a decision to follow Jesus or giving your life to him. But the emphasis of the Bible is on the depth of our rebellion, the hardness of our hearts, the animosity of our minds, which the Lord in sovereign grace overthrew. He overcame all of those things in bringing us to faith. It was strong mercy that found and rescued us. And I'm not sure that people really understand these words that we so often sing. Amazing grace... How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I didn't find Jesus. Guess what? He found me. Was blind, but now I see. Next verse. Was trait, was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears relieved. Grace showed me I had this condition. I had this huge need. I needed forgiveness. I needed acceptance by God. But then grace taught me, I can be through Jesus. How precious did that grace appear? Yeah, I first believed. You see, we were so blind and deaf and dead in sin that the Lord had to awaken us to understand our condition, to fear him, and then so then to believe in Jesus. Faith that was given to us by God as a gift. God has saved us not just by his kindness and love, but every bit of his attributes, his wisdom, his authority, his strength were at work in saving you and I. You're a wretch, saved by grace. So we cannot boast about being a Christian, we cannot boast about our faith, we boast in the Lord and in his sovereign, powerful grace. And this is how he brought it about. 
Jesus is our Savior. Come to that in a minute. But now he's reconciled us in the, body of his, in the body of his flesh through death. God did it. In and through Jesus. In Jesus' being and body on the cross. In Jesus' physical humanity. After the blood of the cross, we looked at two weeks ago in verse 20, comes another very graphic phrase. The body of his flesh. His literal physical body. His physical human body. Listen, this is what I wrote. The eternal Son of God has a human frame and a human name, Jesus. He is still the man, Christ Jesus. A man sits in the throne of God, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was neither God nor angel appearing or pretending to be human. That's what some sects and heretics say. Jesus of Nazareth was a man born of woman, yet he was born of God. He was the eternal, only begotten Son of the God from all eternity, who came and became man, and died on the cross, and in his being and body at Golgotha, God worked reconciliation for us. It's called, another name, atonement. Atonement is the reconciling of enmity, the putting away of sin and transgression, the making of a new relationship. The result of the atonement that God made in Jesus for us is this new relationship with God through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, in which we're justified, we're accepted, we have peace. All of that and more, we, we wrap up in this word we use so simply and easily, saved. Saved. Those who deny these truths about Jesus, the eternal God from all eternity made flesh, true man, true God, went to the cross, literally, physically died on the cross, was buried, rose again on the third day. Those who deny these truths are not Christians, they're something else. Because this is what a Christian believes. Those who deny these truths therefore are deceivers and they're deceived and deceivers, whatever label they may wear, even if they still carry a Christian label. And he's done this to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. We're accepted, we're adopted as God's dear children. He's called out his holy ones. But he's working holiness and blamelessness in us. Here it is, holy. What he has named us must now become our nature. And that's a process of growth and change. We are growing into becoming more of what God already calls us. His dear, holy children, his saints, and his holy ones. It's the continuing work of salvation by grace through faith. Every day as we continue in this life, we're growing more and more the way our God Father wants us to be. In fact, the image we see in Jesus. And he will present us to himself. We don't say, here I am, I did a good job of myself, didn't I? He presents us to himself, having made us, not just in name, but in nature, holy, blameless, and above reproach. So in response to what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to, and to him who saved us by his grace and wisdom and power and is saving us and will save us, we are to continue in the faith, grounded, steadfast. Do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard. You see, most of the New Testament letters and probably the Gospel of John too, were written to groups of Christians who were in different ways, were in danger of being moved away from the Gospel 
by which they had been saved, faith in Jesus, to something else. It was either to go back to Judaism and to do the law, or it was to go back to Greek philosophy, or it was to go back to their, 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 their pagan religion of that region, to add something back in, to mix it, or just to say, well, Jesus is the door, we're in now, so we'll go and do this now. Thank you, Jesus, but we like this better. So, nowadays it, it tends to wear labels like the new teaching, a higher revelation, a deeper knowledge, even, let me say this one, a greater anointing. Something more than you can have simply through believing in Jesus. Oh, really? There were various op op options available then. Now the internet today offers many alternative messages to people. They claim to be the gospel, but a good deal are not the gospel. I'm not saying it's all bad, but there's quite a lot of it is bad. Let me tell you this, that whatever colored wrapper those different sweets wear, the center of them is poison. Whatever moves us away from Jesus, from the cross, from being saved by grace alone through faith alone, from relying on the Holy Spirit to be our, to be our teacher and our guide, is deception. Beware of what adds to or takes away from the gospel. We don't need Jesus plus this or that. Jesus is enough. That should have been earlier, didn't we? Jesus is our, all the S's, supreme, saviour and sufficiency. Whatever moves us away from simplicity of faith and obedience to Jesus is seducing, it's deceiving. You think, I've been being strong, look at 2 John. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. The word antichrist, by the way, is only used by John in his letters. It doesn't appear in Revelation, which talks about a beast, or in Thessalonians, where Paul writes about a man of sin. John uses antichrist in a specific way as a label for false teaching and false teachers, and therefore that is what the word means. Don't be moved away from Jesus and his gospel. Stay grounded. Stay firm. Indeed, be more firmly grounded. That's why we're running Alpha and Freedom in Christ this autumn, because we want to be grounded to know where they stand and they don't get moved off it. Become steadfast, immovable in your faith, commitment and obedience to him. And the gospel gives us hope. Faith for today, hope is today, is faith today for the future. Hope is the confident expectation of the Lord's goodness and help. It's the expectation of his return and he's, he's bringing us to glory and inheritance. The Lord will save and help us today. We believe he will do so again tomorrow even though it's a Monday. Mm. He'll continue to do so until we go in That's our hope. We confess our hope of his goodness pursuing us, taking us through day after day after day after day until we come to our final destination. Oh. Then he, Paul adds this, Now I rejoice. Now I rejoice in my suffering for you. And fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. I can explain these things in a minute. Of which I became a minister or servant according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, the Greek word is mysterium, it's the same word, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, headline, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, 
warning every man, person, yeah, and teaching every person in all wisdom that we may present every person perfect or mature, complete, in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Now, Paul talks there about filling up in his body the, what was lacking, the afflictions of Christ. Let me say this very clearly. There was nothing lacking in the suffering of Jesus himself. His suffering and death in our place, our salvation, was finished at the cross. Now, some Catholics particularly have an idea that you can carry on suffering with and for Jesus. Uh, that if it's about adding to what he did, no, that is wrong. Paul is not saying there's some, there's some uh, lack of suffering in Jesus, which, which Jesus did not complete for us, and we have to do for him or even for his own sake. What does Paul mean here? Well, let's go back to Paul's beginnings. The Lord threw him off a horse, blinded him with a great light, and spoke to him, didn't he? That's a pretty thorough way of getting converted, isn't it? Paul, Paul, who, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you persecute. Paul went to uh, the town he was heading for, and the Lord sent a servant called Ananias, a faithful man, to Saul. Now, can you imagine being told, go and speak to Saul? He says, I know who Saul is. What do you want me to go do and talk to him for? Now, he's my servant now. And this is what the Lord said to Ananias. Go, go, go to him. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So when Paul says, I'm filling up what's lacking, he knows he has a measure of things that he's going to suffer for the Lord's sake. And he's not done it yet. That's simply what he means. The Lord showed Paul the sufferings he would endure. And it connects with that, this statement here in Colossians. And in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about his sufferings, and I'm running out of time here, so um, he talks about his labors, his stripes above measure. He was imprisoned frequently, often uh, you know, close to death. Five times he received 40 stripes minus one from the, from the Jews. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. In three days he was shipwrecked and all the rest of it. And he writes that before even he's anywhere near the historical book of the end of the book of Acts when, again, he goes through imprisonments and he goes in and, and you know, there's more coming, Paul. <laughs> you know, when he wrote 2 Corinthians, he wasn't even near the end of his career. Paul endured all these sake, these things. He endured them all for the Lord's sake, for his name's sake. He, he rejoiced. The, the, the apostles, when they were beaten, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. And Paul suffered them for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is writing this, this letter because of his deep concern for a group of Christians at Colossae whom he's never met. But he's had a report from the man who was probably their founding pastor, Epaphras. And this letter is Paul's fatherly address to them, to a church he's never seen. And it's explaining to them a mystery. A mystery. When the New Testament used the word mystery, it then explains the mystery. It doesn't say, here's the mystery, now you better go and think for a long, long time and see if you can figure it out. No. Here's the mystery. The mystery was concealed throughout all history until now. It was hidden in God from all nations from long ages. But it's summed up now in this phrase. The mystery is this. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the mystery. No one got that figured before Jesus came. The Old Testament prophets had glimpses and they prophesied things, but they didn't altogether understand what they were saying. But they had glimpses of this future coming of Messiah and this glorious person. And, and, but they would never understood that he was going to literally come and, 
embody humanity and take us with him to the cross and take us with him to the grave and take us with him in his resurrection to the very presence of God. Christ in you, he in us, we in him. Jesus says it himself a number of ways in the Gospel of John. I in you and you in me. Praise it. They in me and I in you. Paul uses words here like riches and wealth and treasures in describing this great gift of God which has been revealed in the good news of his son. The problem is some Christians can't hear the words riches, wealth and treasure without seeing dollar signs, pound signs, gold bars and, gold bars and high value goods. Some false teachers twist such words as this away from their context, sanctifying the love of money. My friends, what we have in Jesus is far more valuable than money and possessions. It's riches beyond measure, treasure beyond the world's possessions. He is our hope, not of gathering a hoard here, which, by the way, you can't bury with you, and it's not cremated with you either, but of inheriting all things with him, eternal life in God, joy, peace, glory in the new creation. So let me paraphrase Paul in speaking to Lighthouse Harlingsburg. Since Jesus is above all, he's supreme. Since he saved us not by anything that we've done, but by the working of his grace and wisdom and power, because of his work, finished work on the cross, because of his triumph in the resurrection, because of his presence now as the ascended Christ. He's our saviour. He's still saving you now. All right? Not at the cross, not by rising again, but by reigning over you from heaven. He's still saving us. He is sufficient for you. We sing it some of them. We didn't sing this morning. We sang some great songs. But, you know, this wasn't one of them. Christ is enough for me. We sing it in other ways. You know, I, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. But Jesus is enough for us. We do not need a new word. We don't need a new revelation. We don't need a new message from heaven and we don't need a new anointing. I know people talk like that. I know some of my friends talk like that. They're misunderstanding what this is about. Gee, everything we need is in Jesus. From heaven, from him, through the Spirit. It's all in him. Who's the giver of the Holy Spirit? Jesus. It's one of our four fundamentals as leading people. Jesus is the giver, the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. What word do we have to guide us through life? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, I read this too. The eternal word, God the Son from all eternity, became the incarnate word, God made man, and has given us his word, the word of Christ. So later on in Colossians, Colossians 3.16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. He's writing to people who are used to Greek philosophy, what's wise and philosophical, what's high and fluting and big thinking and all of that kind of thing. And he says, Christ is wisdom. He's all you need. He's given us his word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. So all those who offer additions to or subtractions from this gospel of Jesus are to be rejected. Don't even watch or listen to it. 
You might say, well, there's some good in it. Perhaps so, but it's what's bad in it that's the problem. It only takes a small dose of some poisons to be damaging and even fatal. Last time, our emphasis from Colossians was in the supremacy of Christ. Today, we've looked here at Jesus being our Savior and that he's sufficient. Jesus is supreme. God over all, blessed forever. Those, those, that phrase is used not of God the Father, but of God the Son, when you look at the context. God over all, blessed forever. Jesus is Savior. Let me just stop there for a moment. Is he your Savior? Do you know what it is to have your life transformed? Through simply coming to Jesus. And he is sufficient. One man put it, I forget where the quote comes from, I should have looked it up. Maybe I'll see Sproul again. You only know that Christ is, in the, is all you need when Christ is all you have. In extreme poverty, in extreme affliction, in oppression, in persecution, in prison, when Christ is all you have, you, re you realize Christ is all you need. Christian, do not be moved away from Jesus and his word. Don't add anything to him. And don't listen to those who do. Christ in us is the hope of glory. All true wisdom and knowledge is found in him. The philosophers of this world will not lead you anywhere. They are blind alleys. But knowledge in and of Jesus is saving truth, transforming truth. You will know the truth. Not the truth about medicine, not the truth about history, not the truth about geography. If you know the truth about God in Christ, you'll know the truth. Because Jesus is the truth. Haven't you trusted yourself to him yet? Given your whole life and being to him, into his hands? He gave his life up on the cross and rose from the dead to bring you to new life. It starts with a submission, a surrender, a confession of who you are and where you are. And then a calling out to the Savior who is supreme over all things, the Lord of all. And he is more than sufficient to meet your every need. Let's pray, shall we? We're going to take our time breaking bread. We're in no hurry. We can break bread. Lord Jesus. stand here, Lord, to give you thanks that you, the Eternal One, God the Son, equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, took on flesh, became man, truly human. <laughs> and Lord Jesus, we thank you for your humility in doing so, your submission to the Father. It carried you through to live, to teach to heal, to raise the dead, to work wonders, to, to face off against the false religion and the false leaders of the times. Now, Lord Jesus, you went to the cross, which we'll remember in a moment in communion, and you shed your blood, and you breathed your lust, so that reconciliation was made for us in the body of your flesh. When laid in a tomb, Three days later, you, were, you were rose and ascended. You are still the man, Christ Jesus, but you are still also the eternal Son, reigning over your people. 
That is why you are able to save from beginning to end those who come to you. You're able to bring them right through the whole of their lives as they stay grounded and firm, trusting in you. You're able to keep them to the very last moment, to their very last breath, or to the last moment when you return on the last day. You are able to keep us, Lord, because you are Savior, you're supreme, and you are sufficient. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I hope you have one of these little cuppy things.